Broadcasting live from the medieval buildings and all that, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Kara Strother. And I'm one of your other hosts, Seamus Connolly, and I would like to admire that beautiful accent transition that you just did mid-sentence. I did not Thank expect you. that. Thank you. Uh, this is a pre-recorded episode, as, as promised from last week. However... We will be having a brief news segment here because between the time we recorded the last episode and this episode, the Last of Us HBO trailer has officially premiered, and that seems like something that you and I could could chat real quick about and, and get out before it's, you know, two weeks after that trailer. Right, hit. right, yes. I mean, honest, initial impressions, I thought it looked really good. I've been, you know, kind of skeptical about the whole show, the, the adaptation into a, a series, but seeing this and uh, seeing a couple of the key concept shots that I was, like, even thinking about in my own head beforehand, the the buildings leaning on each other in the in the storm and the design, the close-up design that we get to see of the clicker are are both really doing it for me, if I'm being honest. I think the vibe is, is totally there from what I've seen, and I I think our boy Mando looks phenomenal out there in, the, in that <laughs> our flannel. Our boy I, Mando. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely can retain names of stars that I know a ton about, you know? Yeah, our boy Mando. Well, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. <laughs> of uh, course, that's what the, I said, the, Garrett. The two actors in this trailer. I, I'm just now realizing that you you straight up do not know Bella Ramsey because you never got to do I not her part from well unless she's in something I'm forgetting but you never got to her part of Game of Thrones which is outstanding maybe I just know her from the promo around Game of Thrones and all that but I I'm very excited to see what she can do in this show just because of how everything looks has really got me excited me too I feel like it captures the tone of that game really well which isn't a huge stretch because it already kind of feels like a prestige HBO yeah. drama <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you're playing it. It has that bleak tone in those characters. I mean, it came out around the exact same time as the huge Walking Dead boom. Oh, yeah. Especially early Walking Dead where you're in these abandoned cities with these morally gray characters and it's a lot more about finding each other and trusting each other than it is about the actual zombie threat and those two things have always felt very tonally connected to me so and that's not a knock on last of us at all because i think i mean the walking dead those first couple seasons are oh they're great fantastic hell yeah and i i will I will officially actually finish the stupid game before <laughs> the show comes out. I'm chipping my way through uh, yet another try at a playthrough. I will will myself, no matter how sad I get and how much I don't enjoy <laughs> being in that world as a gamer, uh, I will finish out the story and see it through. Because I do like the characters. You. I do like the world. I just... For me, that's not what I go to my video games for. Not that I go to my video games for one specific thing, but I just wish I liked it more. You know what a big Naughty Dog guy I am. You know what a big Uncharted guy I am. But hopefully this time it'll connect with me better. I I, I hope so. I, I really like that original one or the remaster. I guess I haven't tried the part one yet, but... I uh, I hope you I hope you stick with it. I think it's a solid story overall. And uh, after watching this trailer and being not entirely sure how much of part two they're gonna slip in to this one, considering there's a lot of a lot of different reveals that happen in part two that coincide with some events in part one. 
that I I would be interested to see if they they would sprinkle that in a little earlier rather than maybe wait for a second season or a second series to to try to get that get those details of the world in there. Do we know for sure that this season is the full story of the first game? Oh, I I do not know actually. That's why I'm saying I'm I'm kind of just speculating here whether or not it's going to be maybe it is the entire run of the first game or maybe they're going to kind of diverge from that source material and piss off every fan in in the world and kind of take a little bit of a different route there, but I can imagine if this is successful enough. They've already got kind of built-in fans for this one going in, so they're probably going to make it stretch as long as possible. Well, what I was going to say, actually, is that it feels like from the tone and quality of this trailer that it definitely will be able to find an audience outside of the people who are already fans of the game, because that's something I was definitely worried about, and something I think we've talked about on the show before is Mm. how much are people going to care about this video game TV show that is way past, like, the whole zombie boom that came out ten years ago and seems kind of derivative of other stories that have already been told in in this kind of medium. But I do think that the tone, production design, and the uniqueness of both the clickers and the kind of story that they're telling makes a lot of sense for a wider audience. And I think it is something that, based on this trailer will be able to find the success outside of its core demographic that something like the Uncharted movie was unable to mm. to find. Well, I, I really hope so, because that, that means that we might have the opportunity to flesh out this universe a little more. I, I am, you know, on the fence about the idea of having the first the first game story laid out in a show, but the idea of like a spinoff within the world, a world that even between two full games is still incredibly mysterious and veiled very purposefully i think i would be very very happy to see that happen if it does pick up that kind of widespread appeal from audiences that don't really have that video game experience there's that one like dlc for the first game that I oh know yes about. uh well if you did know anything about that you would have recognized a quick flash of it in the trailer for the show so they are That's definitely fitting that in ask. Yes, they they definitely are fitting that in from what I can I can tell there. So, if they're they're grabbing all the extra pieces and and fitting them in, that's kind of why I think they might be sprinkling in that part 2 lore that connects in to the greater story. So, I guess I'll get part 2 played before I watch this show. As well? <laughs> I I guess maybe. I mean, uh, premiere day will happen and well well I think we'll know pretty fast if they're going the angle of fitting in some of the characters that are influenced by the events in the first one. I think we'll we'll know pretty early on. So you might have to start the show and then stop the show and then marathon through an incredibly grueling sequel and then come back and and you'll be burned out already. Well, I know that there's no official release date yet other than 2023. So I feel like I've probably got time to to chip my way through the Bioshocks and the <laughs> and the uh, what other other thing I'm playing right now. I'm replaying God of War to get ready for the new one. Nice, nice, nice. But hey, man, if you think this first Last of Us is something that you're chipping slowly through, that part two is just it's a it's a the weirdest grind of that's a what story. I hear. My God, man, you're in for it. I I think that's gonna be like you and I were just talking about with Bioshock. I think that's like an easy mode thing where. I'm just like, I yeah. can oh, yeah. plow through it because I'm not interested in the gameplay so <laughs> I can get the experience 
of yeah, the story I, I and would, everything. I would say that's fine, considering how uh, advanced the options for that are in The Last of Us Part Two for, like, the assisted mode. I think you would probably be fine just doing that for the fun of it. Wonderful. That sounds that sounds good to me. Because I've been enjoying just shocking six Bioshock <laughs> enemies at once. Oh, just yeah. Get through whatever stupid room I'm in. Just bashing robots left and right. There's so many robots. So many robots, so many stupid little turrets, but this is not a Bioshock <laughs> podcast. This is an In Bruges podcast. Did we say that at the top? Did we say that uh, we're covering In Bruges? Pretty sure. But if not, today's main segment, uh, we're covering In Bruges. Let's let's move, let's move on <laughs> to our main segment where we're covering In Bruges. Let's talk about In Bruges. In preparation for the, at least I'm highly anticipating the new Martin McDonough film, Banshees of Inishirin, I think is how it's pronounced. I'll know when I see the movie next yeah, week. Yeah, I think you did this last week on the show too, but we'll know next week. It'll be perfect. We, we will know next week what it is actually called, <laughs> but it's got Colin Farrell. It's got Brendan Gleeson, and what better way to get amped up for that on this pre-recorded episode than flashing all the way back to 2008, such a simpler time, oh. uh, but maybe not a simpler movie for In Bruges. I am a big fan of this movie, Garrett. I I saw it a long time ago, probably when I was far too young to understand or appreciate how good this movie is, but re-watching this for the show this week, I was so pleasantly surprised with how much I forgot about it and how much I re-experienced in, like, its full glory and grotesque everything. And it is grotesque. It really... This is, this is such a dark film, and it's such a funny film at the same time. I laughed out loud on multiple occasions watching this movie. Between scenes of just pure devastation and I th- I think it's absolutely whimsical and wonderful and hilarious and I'll definitely rank it to, at the top of my McDonough list of, of the three that I've seen sometimes I think this movie feels like a episode of Seinfeld written by Quentin Tarantino <laughs> it's really that is an absolutely good way to put it it's very that, that vibe those clashing vibes are right there and I will say that McDonough often gets lumped in with other filmmakers like Guy Ritchie as people who are just kind of doing Tarantino but putting their own spin on it. And I think that historically McDonough has a lot more going on in his films than oh yes than t- somebody like Tarantino does. But I think he still does really find a humor in a in a lot of the same things that Tarantino does, like having these awful characters who are clashing up against very mundane situations who are still just normal people, even though they're involved in this, you know, they're usually criminals in a McDonough mm-hmm. film similar to Tarantino's films. Not always, though. I think McDonough does a little bit more variety with his his subject matters. But I, I also feel like, whereas a lot of the time when awful people are doing awful things in Martin McDonough films, you are supposed to hate them more for it. And like when people are using slurs and being racist mm, yeah. and being in other ways prejudiced most of the time, even if it is played for comedy, you're not supposed to agree with them. And I feel like a lot of the time in Tarantino movies, it kind of swings the other way. Yeah, it's a lot more casual and... The- it's it's the punchline of the characters that are maybe supposed to be a little more 
likable in those Tarantino movies that that kind of makes you feel weirder. But this one, I agree. It's like when the antiquatedness of a lot of these lines come through. It, it's for it's for a reason that is, that's written in here for these characters and our view of these characters. So it's it, it feels a little more earned in the script, I would say. It's also just definitely helped this movie age better than a lot of other movies that use similar language from its time. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of really awful words in this, and a lot of really awful things that are said. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, like we were saying, it's a, it's not a light movie for as funny as it is. It, It is about characters that are pretty despicable for the most part. Even the, even the characters we know not a ton about, it's like, it's debauchery, and it's drugs, and it's the absence of a moral center because they're kind of in this weird fairy tale setting that they they're letting themselves go into. They're in Bruges, as it were. In Bruges, indeed. But I also like how mundane so many of the setups are of just like having to share a hotel room with somebody you don't like. Yeah. And, you know, or like just being annoyed with the people next to you at a table at a restaurant that are escalated because, you know, you've got these hitmen who are in a weird situation or whatever other things that happen later in this movie that we can't get into mm. because of spoilers. Of course. Yes, I. But I. I just think this movie is beautifully done. It's. It's visually beautiful. I think it's just the city itself is so enchanting to look at. Accompanied, of course, by the music by Carter Burwell. Is I love Carter Burwell. He's. He's lighting the keyboard on fire for this music for this one. It's so good and so you know it's that melancholic magical piano suite that he kind of runs through the whole movie. It's. It's fantastic. It really is a beautiful film for how Mm -hmm. crass it is. And the performances are so human, too. I think that's another thing that really separates McDonough from other filmmakers that he is compared with. And I think there are very warranted criticisms of some of his later work, especially Three Billboards, a movie that I do ultimately like. But Mm. here, I think this is... Of the work of his that I've seen, I know I'm missing Seven Psychopaths, and I think his first film I've not seen, whatever that's called, I don't know off the top of my head. I I don't know either. I've I've only seen this Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards. But I think there's so much depth to every single performance going on here. Every single Harry Potter actor in this movie (laughs) is extremely nuanced. And Colin Farrell, the lead, is such a complex character. You really feel Mm. everything that he's going through in a way that it would be easy for the movie to let him off the hook if it were just going to be playing more of a straight comedy. Right, yeah. But the fact that, I mean, this movie, as we'll talk a little bit more about in spoilers, is so much about moral ambiguity, the damnation of ourselves how we live with ourselves after doing a horrible thing, moral relativism, Mm. how we deal with others who we know to be bad people, but, you know, it's like, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Do they even say that in the movie? Maybe? I feel like they do. And I really do love everything that's going on with all of these characters. Brendan Gleeson is just a tremendous talent. Incredible, yeah. Beautiful and sweet and and incre- so so well done especially because we were just talking about how all of these characters are despicable he is not exempt from being despicable it's just that oh absolutely he's not so 
kind and so emotionally intelligent in a way that none of the other characters are that you still love him despite what an awful person he is. Yeah, I I, I have many things to say about his character, spoiler-wise. I, I just, I Me think too. he was so... This was probably the first movie I saw him in? This might have even you been before I saw... You have seen Harry Potter. I mean, I... <laughs> maybe. When did that one come out? Number four, Goblet of Fire, came out in 2005, a full three years Okay. All right. Okay. All right. That's fair. But this Which is... Which was also when you would have seen Fleur de Clure show up. Yes, um... that's true. Oh, uh, where's, where's Jordan Prentice in that movie? And actually, Ray Fiennes. All of... All of... Oh those, yeah, those top three. You know, Colin Farrell. Like, Colin Farrell's the not until the new till, one, right? Uh, till the till uh, Fantastic Beasts. Ah, uh, what won. a shame. The rest of them, they're here. These performances are phenomenal. Ray Fiennes is exploding in a beautiful, passionate fury in this movie, and even in the the moments of his really dreadful calm in between his his very fiery character blowing up, it's it's so intimidating and well done for his like mob boss style character. Character. Something I did not remember at all about this movie is that it is a Christmas movie. Is it? I mean, it's just snowing, isn't it? It takes place explicitly at Christmas. They oh, talk about right. it being at Christmas. Because they're like, that's why you have to share the room. Uh-huh. And I think it seems like towards, I don't know, oh, this is maybe a spoiler. We <laughs> see a character's family seeming to be having Christmas morning oh, as at one point. right. Right, right, right. That actually places the last day of this film on Christmas, I think. That is incredible. How how could I not pick that up? Because when you say that now, that makes complete sense. So I think there's a lot of thematic stuff to be mined from that, especially which we'll get into in spoilers, all of the, you know, the, the Christian themes that mm. run through this film. But also it just puts it up there with a great other set of, like, dirty Christmas movies. Oh, I love of, a, I love a dirty Christmas movie. I mean, anything Shane Black's ever done. yes. But also things like Trading Places is a film that I always put in that category, even though it's a comedy. Die Hard, of course. Of course. Gremlins, I would say, counts. I would put that in this category. That's specific. That's very specifically a Christmas movie, though. I feel like it has to be a little more adjacent. Iron Man 3, but that's just another... That's a Shane, Shane Black. Black. yeah. Eyes Wide Shut, we were just talking about. Oh, God, that's bizarre. But yeah, we'll talk more about that in spoilers, definitely, about the way that Christmas mm. ends up playing into the themes of this film. I think in in very interesting ways when you're thinking about rebirth and redemption and uh, like even there's like kind of a fairy tale nature to the idea yeah, of Christmas. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think of what else we can even say about this movie without getting into the spoilers other than just like quoting a bunch <laughs> of the different scenes that I thought were really funny. Uh, I, I think this is one of the last great screwball comedies. I don't know if it technically counts as a screwball comedy, but it really is I mean, when there's, you get down to the way it's written. Yeah, seriously. There's a lot of really key moments that are way screwier than it has any reason to be in the situations that they're doing. Because you've got early in the film on a job here in Bruges. Here in Bruges, on a job. <laughs> I, th I have been saying that to myself since I rewatched this a couple days ago. What does he say when they're in the museum about history? It's He's like, it's just a bunch of stuff that's already happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this film is hilariously written. The dialogue is really engaging and, again, shows you a lot of character through each of those interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, a lot of those early just, like, sightseeing 
moments between Ken and Ray. It's so it's so bouncy and fun, and th- those two polar opposite characters are just like I guess, I guess that's how you write a perfect little scene there with those kinds of characters kind of bumping into each other like that because they're still very likable and I mean maybe Ken more than Ray obviously but like I'm still I'm still laughing a lot at what Ray is saying and doing despite how bleak everything is we, we kind of get a slow drip of reality of like why we're why they're there and what they're doing there and and why the attitudes are the way they are and it's just very very well done i remembered siarin hines is in one scene of this movie and he plays aberforth dumbledore in the last harry potter movie oh my god okay fine (laughs) fine i'll give it to you i knew there was another one hiding in there somewhere I, i i could feel it in my in my brain should we foray ourselves into spoilers do you think garrett I do think probably it's time for spoilers, because it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about the kineticism and foreshadowing moving into the third act. Mm, yeah, seriously. There's a lot There's a lot of uh, pieces that are set up. So yeah, let's call it official spoiler warning for In Bruges. Where, where do you want to start with this, man? We, we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about here. I mean, we barely touched on Jordan Prentice, who plays Jimmy in this movie he's he's doing (laughs) incredibly well i did not remember them having such a friendship in this movie if i'm being honest i remembered him being a lot more awkward and rude but i guess their relationship is up and down in this movie a lot it it really really is i really only remembered the scene where they party together and then the very end for for jimmy's character i did not remember the end of jimmy if i'm being honest that was (sighs) brutal and I mean, uh, we're in spoilers. Jimmy gets his face blown clean off by Ray Fiennes. It's insane. It's so well executed, though, because this whole movie, Jimmy's there, and it's feeling like it's supposed to satirize the very idea of Bruges is this fairy tale purgatory that mm, yes. Ray and Ken are stuck in. And Jimmy feels like he's there to be, you know, you have a little person, which is kind of a staple of dream sequences and fairy tales and stuff, but mm-hmm. also his very presence is mocking that idea, and because he's there to shoot a movie where <laughs> he is part of a dream sequence. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's very. It's a lot of layers to that one, for sure, but then it's also the layering of the visual reminder. I mean, he literally wears a schoolboy uniform in the third act of this. It's the, all these visual reminders of why they're stuck in Bruges this whole time. The terrible mistake that Ray made in his very first job. That's another thing I didn't remember, that it was his first hit that is what leads him to Bruges and ultimately where he is kind of taken to be put down. It's very, It's very dark. Yeah, that... Not only I thought the whole priest scene was actually really funny at the beginning. His whole fake confession yeah, yeah. leading up to assassinating a priest that feels like a hitman cutscene. <laughs> a little more, a little more whimsical than a regular hitman cutscene, but it's definitely, it's definitely there. And but then the immediate tonal dive into him oh. accidentally having shot and killed a child, which. Then later in the movie, Ray finds his character, Harry, who is their boss, is saying that the second you kill a kid, you just, you gotta put the gun in your mouth because you gotta have a code, you know, and if you kill a kid, you don't get to live, that's the rule, as far as he's concerned. So, 
putting all of those things into place without making them seem too obvious, in addition to the fact that you have Harry picking up uh, the dum-dums, for, which make yeah, your head explode yeah. when you get shot with them, that, and that's just like a throwaway joke. But then all of that culminating to that final moment where Jimmy gets his head blown off. Oh, so rough, so rough. And also, I didn't remember Ray getting shot so many times brutally. I, I guess in the exact same fashion as the priest that he killed in the, in the job that he bungled up there. But it's, I mean beautifully shot terrible gore violence on that on that movie set where ray finds then does put the gun in his own mouth and kill himself but the crowning achievement of cinema violence gore whatever you want to call it that's stuck with me to this day is ken's ken's uh jump off of the tower it's uh, rough dude it's so they it's it's bad man the splat <laughs> is uh uh, one hell of a splat. Whatever, however they did those effects, whatever they threw at whatever distance to make that kind of effect is is haunting. I remember when we watched that the first time, my family, and my mom, going, "This movie is ridiculous." When <laughs> it is though. It is though. Oh my god! And, and that's I, another thing I like about McDonough is that to him, violence. It can be funny, but it's not glorified. It's not fun. And everything that happens in this movie, all the gore is not like fun Tarantino, bright red fountains right. of blood. It's this awful, visceral experience that these characters are having that, you know, from the way people are shot to, you know, all mm -hmm. of Ken's bones sticking out oh. of his body and what an amazing close-up as he dies of you see these, like, three different stages mm. where Ken said, well, first he says, I think I'll die now. Yeah. And then you see the pain go, then leave. Then you see the life leave his body. All oh, just really in the eyes. In succession, all non-verbally. It's all the eyes. It's so incredible. Good. Yeah, and that makes it all the more devastating because, again, he is this sweet father figure-esque character that that you want to like so much and i mean one thing that i de definitely did not pick up on when i watched it way back in the day is how much that this is his main story and this is his yeah he, he tells that short story about how he the only person he ever killed that he like regretted basically or didn't deserve it was just some guy who is trying to help his brother, who's just trying to defend his brother. And then we get another, when he's sending Ray off onto the train there, uh, to, you know, out into the wilderness of Europe before he gets nabbed by the Canadians, about how he just needs to, he needs to pick one thing or one person, one other boy that he can save with his actions rather than just ending everything and not getting to redeem himself at all. And how In Bruges was really Ken's entire redemption of his entire life of crime and going back to the idea that yeah he is a sweet fatherly gentler character but he has a life of a hitman behind him and he his responsibility for taking those lives ultimately does culminate with him getting shot in the neck maybe the only blood fountain spurt which was also br more brutal than i remember and then yeah him leaping off of the of the tower there to save his boy and this idea that he goes from the guy killing the man just trying to save his brother to the guy just trying to save his brother. He is 
putting his neck out specifically mm. for Ray. That there that he goes from the murderer to the guy who's the last line of defense. Yeah, and I mean, there is a little, <laughs> I mean, is it a little gift of the Magi idea where he's like, yeah, I'm going to tuck my gun into my coat and then belly flop onto the pavement from 500 feet in the air and then I'll he, give him my shattered gun? I didn't remember that his gun yeah, got shattered. Me that neither. is rough. That is but he so does brutal. save Ray still. I mean, that that oh, is yeah. not for nothing at the very least, which if they were especially cruel, it would be, you know. But yeah, he gives him the advance notice, and I mean, he doesn't uh, tell him where the other gun is, but, you know, he, he he gets there eventually back at the hotel. Another sequence in this, this is not at all about, it's not the third act, nor is it about gore, but I love the bit in the hotel that's just Brendan Gleeson yes! one long continuous <laughs> shot with the long shot from Touch of Evil playing on the TV uh... in the background of just him having this make-believe play session that's uh, so while funny. Ray Fiennes is on the phone. Specifically, too, when he's like, he he makes sure he like slams the door and he's like, are you sure he's gone? Ray Fiennes is like, are you sure he's gone? And he's like, I did the, the, the eye roll that Brendan Gleeson gives. is like, I'm doing all this for you, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm making this up as I go. I was going to say Marie, the hotel owner, but yeah, I also like no, Marie answer. Marie is great. I honestly felt bad for her having had taken the fake message from Ray Fiennes. I, I was <laughs> like, oh, man, she, she doesn't deserve nothing. Yeah, that that's a, that's a rough one. I forgot about that. <laughs> Which is also, I think, the first time we hear anything from Ray Fiennes' character is that phone oh, message. Oh, yeah. So, was that? Oh, no, yeah, that was before the the miming that we were just talking about, because it was the, the second call. So it's really funny to introduce this character whose entire bit is the pronounced, hilarious, over-the-top <laughs> way yeah. that he talks with the profanity, and he almost speaks in meter, like... Like, the oh, way yeah, yeah. the profanity, the expletives are, are sprinkled throughout his language makes it almost poetic or rhythmic. So the idea of introducing that character through writing, through dialogue that you have to read, that is simultaneously, unmistakably that character talking, but also not from a character we've heard speak yet, is a really funny touch. Oh, totally. It's very, it's a, it's very interesting too. It's just considering how, again, I keep talking about how fiery Ray Fiennes is in this, and how that character, that introduction, I almost feel like is specifically extra subdued. Like he's reading, like he's reading a phone message. Like he knows what his boss's voice sounds like, but it's just very monotone and singular. The whole, the whole message, even with all the expletives that are that are added in there. But I love also her at the end standing up for Ray, and we don't really know why she does it. Just because it's the right thing to do, or it's her hotel. Yeah, or... I, th- I think she she's got like a little bit of a soft spot for him, and I think it, it definitely is. I think kind of in defiance to Ray Fiennes, like she she was disrespected in her own hotel, and then he came to her hotel with a gun to commit a murder. She's just like, no, like this is my spot. Get out of here. We also see her trimming the tree. That's another thing that's yes. Christmas about this movie. Very, very true, yes. Because that is another moment where we see Ray reflecting on the kind of family life, the kind of normalcy that he's left behind in his chosen profession, and Christmas becomes kind of emblematic of that as well. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, he's at at that point in the movie, he's he's just like so. He, I mean, he's growing more and more alone as that third act picks up speed until the very end, where it's very ambiguous, of course. But like, yeah, he he is he's such a sadder character, more sad character than I I remembered. And the fact that we're kind of unpacking a lot of this Christmas stuff now is making it even more tragic, considering he was going to, like, blow his own head off at a children's playground on Christmas Eve, I guess, at that, that point? That would be Christmas Eve, I think. Yeah, yeah that's that's insane. My God. Or also, maybe, I don't know, there might be a day between those. It might be December 23rd. At the, but the Christmas time. The, Christmas everyone's time. in the spirit, and he's, like, he is very much not in the spirit in that moment. I think this is a good time to talk about, throughout his whole journey, what Bruges represents to him and why the title is in Bruges. This idea that it's pretty much explicitly stated that Bruges is purgatory. Yeah. I mean, they say as much, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like even from the from the very start in the opening credits, even that he's like complaining about being in Bruges and the, the evolution that he has in his relationship with the city itself and how. It turns from, like, this this holding cell to this prison to just, like, his existential eternity of, of what he's laid out for his own life. And, and how that, even in the very end where he's on the dream sequence set in the city, dying, seeing, you know, having his out-of-body monologue experience, it, it very much does feel, in the end, like it's supposed to be some kind of huge metaphor maybe maybe he's yeah i don't know i guess there's also a lot of hard hard drugs in these move in this movie that these characters are doing yeah i really admire the editing choice to i don't know if this is how it was written on the page but by placing the reveal of him shooting the priest in london as a flashback you set the entire timeline of the yeah. movie in Bruges. There's no part of this movie that isn't set in Bruges. Yeah, he doesn't even get out of the city before his train is stopped, I think, right? You can, like, see the city out of the window when he gets caught up with it. Yeah, because they stop the train, like, just outside the limits, I think, yeah. of the city, and then they take him back to Bruges, which is... It's in Belgium, by the way. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what our broadcasting location should have been. Broadcasting live from Bruges. Bruges. It's in Belgium. It's in Belgium. <laughs> and just this idea that not only is this a purgatorical space for him, b- that he's literally unable to escape, but that also it could be hell. I think that's another thing that they kind of dance around. Yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe this is purgatory, but also maybe it's straight up hell. Maybe it's the worst place you could be, but... In reality, we see through Ken's eyes and through the eyes of the other characters what a fantastic place Bruges is. And the again, the fairy tale quality mm. that Ray finds his character, Harry, keeps bringing up. But it's showing us that Feral, Ray, his state of mind is what's making Bruges this insufferable place to be, this purgatory. Mm-hmm. No matter where he was, it would be purgatory. But he is so distraught and so racked with guilt and so ready to end his own life that anywhere that he is becomes hell on earth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely... I I agree 100%. It, it's 
the the misery that this character carries with them throughout the entire time. I mean, even though he he very vehemently tries to distract himself with sex and drugs and alcohol and you know anything that isn't just existing in the city of Bruges, you know, not under the influence of some kind of chemical one way or another. I think it it, it really shows that I th- this really could be anywhere, and the fact that it is so stuck beginning middle and end in the, in the city and I, I mean the end is literally like an out of body shot above Ray's bleeding out body looking to you know massive rats and the corpse of his little person friend maybe friend I don't know they they butted heads a little bit at the end there about race stuff which is a weird scene but I mean it's entirely I'm trying to come up with the word here it's it's whimsical it's it's magical it's this it's the darkest depths of a nightmare that this man is stuck in but it's just like everyone and everything around him just has this little stardust that's sprinkled over it that that he can't seem to see in any way it's a movie that walks right up to being magical realism without actually committing to it because there's so much coincidence and so many fable-like aspects to this film that it feels, again, they they invoke the idea of fairy tales and Bruges being a fairy tale and religion and Mm. these different stories from Christianity that are then kind of placed over the template of Bruges and what the characters are going through that I think that's just enough to give you that little kick into seeing, yeah, the whimsy of w- mm-hmm. such a bleak story, ultimately, and the fact that the great triumph of this character is, you know, we have no idea if he lives or dies. In fact, it's extremely important to the th- to the themes and the finality of the end of the film that we don't know whether he lives or dies, but that he hopes that he does. He's gone from this suicidal, horrible person racked with guilt over what he's done and who he's hurt to ultimately being able to listen to Ken and learn from Ken's actions as well as his words that that there is a way through that there is a way to not maybe redemption but to make things better and to moving on with your life and to accepting the world that not only that you're born into but that you have helped create Mm -hmm. and changing your own circumstance through intentional action and the fact that he tries to save Harry from killing himself at the end. He tries to tell yeah, him that, is that a, he didn't kill a kid. That is very true. That's something I didn't remember either, if I'm being honest, that he, he even his own redemption kind of bleeds out into. he He's trying to save the man who fully opened up into him with a clip of, of ammunition with those with those dumb dumb hollow points, you know? It's it's interesting. He gets these he gets these various opportunities to, like, receive and dish out these different levels of redemption throughout the movie. And, I mean, ultimately, I hope... I mean, re-watching it now, I'm... I mean, he's probably dead, right? He's he's never leaving Bruges, if I'm being honest. But the idea that he could survive and, you know, take with him Bruges itself, the, the events in that city and, and what happened to him there, the life that he lived in that, like, weekend in Bruges that grew him further in that way. I, I I would like to imagine that character gets to stretch that out a little bit, but I'm pretty sure he's dead. He's super dead. Again, I feel like that's 
the whole thesis of no, the film. Yes, is of course. He it's it's Schrodinger's protagonist. Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's Ray. Man, you know. I mean, even right up until or right up in the like earlier stuff, going again, going back to the like just the sightseeing. He is literally offered to touch the blood of Jesus Christ at one point, and that is one of my favorite bits. That I mean, it shows both of their characters so fundamentally and is also just hilarious with the like of course you don't have to do you have to go touch the blood of jesus christ of course you don't have to i i thought that was just great <laughs> again more screwball comedy. exactly yes that's that's i was thinking about that when we were talking about the screwball stuff earlier but I, I, again it just ties back into the ideas of like rejecting redemption and facing that redemption in various ways before you can even see it for what it is it's I, I, I think it's it's masterful. I do think that when you look at the way that a character like Ray is treated in this film, who is objectively awful, he is he's not as bigoted as some of the other characters, but he clearly has some prejudices that he's carrying around. Yeah. Um, and the way that this movie is ultimately all about trying to find his redemptive qualities and find how a person like that can become a good human being or somebody who's trying to at least contribute positively to the world that they're Mm. living in. And then you go and you look at something like Three Billboards, where they're trying to do a similar thing with Sam Rockwell's character, who I think is doing a great job in that movie. I think Sam Rockwell is a great actor. Oh, definitely. He's fantastic in that movie. But... I feel like that doesn't work quite as well because that movie is very much about a very rooted, grounded, American, rural identity that has a very Mm. real history and a very real place. Not that Bruges doesn't have real history, but it's repeatedly brought up how it's a fairy tale place. Yes, it is is squarely outside a, a certain realm of reality from the lips of almost every character in that movie. But Ebbing, Missouri is very rooted and very, again, grounded in a way that I feel like makes it harder to swallow the Mm. movie's attempted redemption of a character who we know to have done awful things, who similarly is, is, has violent tendencies and has very clearly stated racial bias and, has acted on that racial bias in his position as a police officer. And so the way that these two films seem to have so much in common, but also I feel like tonally butt heads, showed the way that McDonough's filmmaking can act, I think, more strongly in this dark comedy with almost magical realist elements mm. than it can in that more grounded setting. I, I think we be, both need to re, re-watch, or I guess watch for the first time, Seven Psychopaths, because I feel like I, I struggled to remember it because I've only seen it the once, but I feel like it has a really good middle ground of that. It's not like entirely one, it's not entirely in Bruges or entirely three billboards, but there's a there's a fun line that they, they dance on in that one. And Christopher Walken's there, so and, and Sam Rockwell's also kicking ass in that one too, so there, there's there's something for you to come for. I really do love Sam Rockwell. Oh, he's there, great. Are, there are a few actors I love the way I love Sam Rockwell. I'm trying to think. What do you what do you got any do you got anything else you wanna you wanna pose about this film that we watched besides how incredible it looks and is? 
it definitely grew on me watching it this time. I agree yeah. with you that I wasn't nearly as young as you the first time I saw it, but watching it with a more analytical eye, I simultaneously found that so much of the the themes are so much more blatantly yeah, oh yeah. stated than I remembered them being because I remember thinking the first time I saw it that I was really smart for understanding the purgatory stuff. Oh, I mean, me too. Are you kidding me? I, that's why I probably remembered this movie so fondly is because I felt so smart about it. But in that, I don't think that the movie is any weaker for the fact that it is so pronounced about what it's trying to talk about and what its characters are going through. If anything, it lends itself to the fairy tale quality. It's a fairy tale about hitmen, you yeah. know? And I, I would say this film grew on me, and I am excited to revisit probably the rest of his filmography, and I'm very curious to see. I don't know if you know anything about what we're going into with Banshees. Oh, I, I, I have no idea. It seems like the shoe might be kind of on the other foot in terms of their character dynamic, and I'm very curious to see... Huh how thematically those two films play together, especially when it's so explicitly a reunion between the (laughs) big players in both of these films. Yeah, seriously. So I really do hope we get the opportunity to cover that on the show next week. I think we're still kind of up in the air about what we're doing, but if we do get the chance to talk about it, I'll be very interested to see how this conversation is able to continue through the lens of that film. Absolutely. I'm 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 very excited about that now. I'm 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 revved up and ready to go locked and loaded on the McDonough train once again. Very excited. This week's pop culture reference are the works of Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus Bosch was a Dutch painter most famous for his oil paint on wood works, and one of the earliest important examples of the new Netherlandish painting school. Little is known about his personality and his own interpretations of his own work because of a lack of personal notes and journals, and only about 25 works can be definitively attributed to his hand. Despite his mysterious early life, his fantastical art style depicting various religious events and nightmarish depictions of hell have inspired major art movements including the 16th century Northern European art movement and the 20th century Surrealism movement. Today's main segment not only directly references the works of Bosch in the context of Dutch art in the city of Bruges and its influence on current media, but the chaotic nature and themes of divine judgment are clear in both this film and the works shown in the film. Martin McDonough, writer and director of In Bruges, has stated that he wanted In Bruges to echo the disturbing essence of Bosch's work, specifically The Last Judgment, as discussed on screen. Other artists, such as Salvador Dali and David Lynch, have acknowledged the influence Bosch has had on their work. Yeah, I definitely, when I see references to Bosch, I I feel like they're right up next to references to Dali in, I feel like, classic cartoons. A lot of cartoons will, will drop that, those heavy philosophical art references on unsuspecting children and then years later we'll just kind of pick up on it again after watching it Bruges. so that's definitely how I am aware of, of Say it's a renter! I echo those sentiments almost entirely to the point that I have <laughs> anything else to say beyond yeah his work is incredibly influential and definitely is something I know through the things that it's influenced more than I know the work itself oh almost certainly like like we mentioned before there there are really only a few specifically attributed to him so I I probably think more about like the Looney or um yeah the Looney Tunes like old Looney Tunes I feel like I definitely remember references to that and I want to say I want to say there's a 
character named Bosch who like creates nightmares in that ABC show Once Upon a Time, but I could be wrong about that. I, I only watched that over my girlfriend's shoulder for a while. You're confusing it with the hit Amazon Prime original series Bosch. What? <laughs> Wait, is that real? Yeah, there's and Bosch Legacy. <laughs> I thought you were joking before when you were saying that. No, with Titus Welliver? Come on, oh you my think I would joke about I Titus thought, Welliver? I thought you were. I thought you were just very explicitly clever. I don't know. Only only a true genius could come up with <laughs> Bosch Legacy. Let me tell you that right now. Oh, only in my mind, that's for sure. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got this week? I'm coming out of the gate with a weird one, Seamus. Ooh, what you what what you got? It's not weird in that the the content is weird. It's just a weird thing for me to rec center. But I recently rewatched Star Trek 2009 and just had a fantastic time with it. I remember it being kind of eye rolled at back when it came out. Not that it wasn't you know acclaimed and a blockbuster and stuff like that, but that Abrams' style of shaky cam and mm. lens flares and everything was kind of annoying to people at the time, I feel like, and definitely it was in the midst of everything getting rebooted. It was actually kind of at the beginning of that movement. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I do, I do remember that. That was a good while ago. My God. I feel like now, watching it in a modern context, very similar to Avatar, a thing that we'll be talking about in a couple months on this show, which I just went and did the re-release for earlier this week week, um, the way that blockbusters have evolved in the almost 15 years since Star Trek came out and Avatar the same year makes so many of those things that were quirks of the industry at the time a lot more endearing mm. and a lot more engaging, I think. J.J. Abrams' direction, much like you and I rediscovered when watching Mission Impossible 3 recently, is super engaging uh, towards the beginning of his career, and I think this movie is perfectly cast. I think it's really entertaining. It's a shame that the sequels to it didn't really capitalize on the same momentum mm. that that first one has, but even as somebody who has very little knowledge of Star Trek outside of that specific movie, I have a great deal of affection for it, and I think it's worth just going and having a great time with. Well, I we've talked many times, I mean, albeit very briefly on this show, about how I have such, a, such little knowledge of that world specifically, and you've always pitched these to me as movies that were a lot better than they're given credit for and definitely a fun time so I I would like to I'd like to get caught up a little bit with you here I feel like that's a fun that's a fun boys night watching a couple modern Star Trek things going on I, I'm, I'm I'm down for that and yeah I know there's lots of fun little JJ references in in that first one and, and as he goes down in the series so that's that's extra that's extra sprinkles on top for old shaky pops over here so I'm definitely in <laughs> Don't laugh at it, Gary. Act like it's normal. Like I say it all the time. You do say it all the time. That's why it's <laughs> funny, actually. I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna get that nickname going. So help me God. I know. I do know that Trek purists have their fair share of issues with it as a reboot, and that it frankly does feel a lot more like a Star Wars movie than a Star Trek movie. In mm. fact, it might be Abrams's best Star Wars movie. <laughs> 
I don't know. I like Force Awakens, but I probably don't like Force Awakens as much as I like Star Trek 09. But and that's um, that, that's really all you need. To, if it's better than the Force Awakens, a movie that I still you know like a fair amount, then that's that's the that's all I need to hear, man. That's the seal of approval. Well, I'm very excited to to check that one out with you, hopefully soon, because it's a blast and a half. But Seamus, what have you brought to the table this week? Well, I don't mean to undercut your 2009 J.J. Abrams movie, but with the new Cloverfield news, I think I need to come back at you with a 2008 J.J. Abrams movie, the original Cloverfield, and I know, I know I've talked about this before, and I know, I think I've rec-centered the franchise of Cloverfield specifically before, but with the new news that there is an official director on the new Cloverfield movie, and they're moving forward with it in Paramount, which is something I honestly never thought I would hear again, I thought it was gonna die after Cloverfield Paradox, but it is time, ladies and gentlemen, to revisit the original 2008 Cloverfield in all of its glory, in all of its genuinely disturbing horror movie stuff. It's a horror movie. I don't know if you remembered that, Garrett, but it is a horror movie. And it just, the the fact that it's giant horror and little microscopic micro crab guy horror is, it's a perfect mix and maybe one of the best found footage movies of all time. And I will stand by that. I think that it is, it is entirely effective in the horror that it puts forward and considering that people are going to maybe literally crucify J.J. Abrams if he doesn't give the world a true sequel to the original Cloverfield with the monster and all I think that that's probably the route they're going in especially after how they kind of fake out bait and switched the albeit incredibly brief promotional period for the Cloverfield paradox promoing it as the answer to all the questions that the original one gave you I think they have to go forward with the with the true sequel now and I think I, I think the original one still holds up I watched it recently and it is it is still fantastic and scary and I I will I will stand by the found footage Garrett I know I know you'll have thoughts about that but it's it's so well done I have definitely seen all of Cloverfield. I have never seen it all at once. Oh man, we really should. We really should. It's good. And I know TJ Miller is like one of the main characters, but we yeah, can forgive but like, that. TJ Miller is in good things. That it it's like you said yeah. to me last week about Jared Leto, where <laughs> two weeks ago maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not your fault that sometimes he shows up and is in a good movie. Yeah. You know? That's true. It, it's harder that he's also like the narrator and frame of that original Cloverfield movie because yeah. he's holding the camera but that means he's on screen very little it's just he, he's got good quips that they write for him and by the way just so everybody is clear if you didn't happen to listen to last week's rec center the third episode of the podcast ever Seamus <laughs> rec centered Frasier and that was his rec center last week and then this week he rec centered Cloverfield and it, the second episode of the podcast <laughs> ever is the last time he rec centered Cloverfield uh, so we're really going back through the greatest hits for you right I, now huh? I, I know know what my original uh, one was, but I'm not going to do that until we wrap up, until we have a special episode with Fritz on the show, you know what I mean? That is very, that's very good. I think that's <laughs> a very good thing. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of... I think it does. I almost called this Save the Rec Center, which, is, which would not be a bad idea. <laughs> that's not a bad, that's a spinoff name, right there, but, yeah. Uh, this is a show called Pop Culture Reference, and if you want to reach us on social media, you can tweet us, find us on Instagram, find us on TikTok, at PCR underscore podcast. You can 
email us directly at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Whatever platform you're listening on, please go ahead, give us a thumbs up, follow us, subscribe, uh, hit the bell icon, any kind of engagement, commenting, etc. That really helps the show out. Next week, we are probably covering the Banshees of Inishirin, or however you say the name <laughs> Um, It is possible, of course, depending on how news goes or how crazy the next two episodes of Andor, Andor are, yeah. that we'll be back, of course, with Star Noirs next week with our catch-up on not only next week's episode of Andor, but the one that's airing this week. So it's possible that'll be a full catch-up episode, but hopefully we will be coming back at you with Banshees. But no matter what, and I'm telling you so you have time to get prepped, <laughs> we will be coming back in two weeks with Seamus' favorite franchise, the culmination of everything Evil Dies oh my this God. Halloween. Will it, Halloween though? Ends. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. That is that's our that's coming up and then we're in we're well into October really yeah. after this my god so. years wrapping up folks it's gonna be Christmas any day now it really it really really is especially with how chock full our schedule is October and November we're gonna be oh, busy man. little guys oh yes yes sir we are but I'm excited to talk about whatever we end up talking about next week adios alcoves